there is an element of uh, in all murders, unless it's you know an underworld murder, that a level of uh, mental unbalance. We have our own private narratives, so wouldn't it be nice if I had this woman and drove this car? And most of us snap out of it and go on to our uh, day-to-day drudgery, whereas some of these people don't. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's 30 years covering tales of murder and once started his day being briefed on the nightly body count of New York City, where he knocked doors and fronted up killers on the tough daily beat. But tabloid man Brad Hunter says that despite covering hundreds of stories, there have always been those that stayed with him. And decades into a career in murder, he says that there are many victims he simply cannot forget. This week, Hunter tells me about a career in the fast lane of crime journalism and about the stories that have made it into his new book, Cold-Blooded Murder. From religious zealots living secret double lives to seemingly normal couples who plot to kill, we talk money, sex and crime from a shocking collection of killers and psychopaths who have marked his lengthy career. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Your book opens with your your own musings on murder, um, saying that obviously it's the vilest crime known to man, but you talk about how it's triggered through love, money, sex, um, and then sometimes the most ordinary people can do the most extraordinary things. Now, you're 30 years, I think, covering murder. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, I have to say it is an unusual job, isn't it? Oh, it's 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 a very weird job. At its best, it's a grown-up game of cops and robbers and, you know, the, the constant little puzzles. And, I, you know, I understand that Ireland is more similar to Canada than the United States, whereas if you phone the cops, they'll send you everything but including the kitchen sink, you know, gory crime scene photos, the whole nine yards. Whereas here, and I'm sure there, is that the onus is more on the journalist to try to piece things together, to to use your own good common sense, to, to think, well, it stands to reason that this is going to happen next and maybe a friendly cop will say yes or no sometimes usually you won't get that much out of them but uh, but you can try and that's one of the things that you know is, is continually engaging is is having to tease out answers uh for 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 various and sundry things i've done a fair number of mafia uh hits as well and and they're always you know more epic than two street gang guys in a parking lot at four o'clock in the morning uh, shooting at each other. There's more of an overarching epic story that, that you know, might go back a hundred years. Absolutely, absolutely. And right into the heart of organised crime. The um, you're, you're dead right in what you say there. Yeah, in, in, I think, outside of the US, we're always very jealous of our colleagues who are working in the States because of the amount of access they have to court documents, to videos, to arrest warrants. Um, 
it always seems like a super place to do the job because you have so much you have so much access to things. You started off in the New York Post, is that right? Well, no, I uh, I did uh, a hardship postings in small Canadian uh, newspapers before I uh, our visit to New York. I walked in off the street and uh, they <laughs> they liked the uh, kind of my jib and uh, called me for uh, an interview and I and I was uh, I was hired uh, I was hired there. Um, and when was that, Brad? Uh, I worked at the New York Post from 1998 to 2004, which, you know, covered uh, the death of John Gotti and all sorts of, you know, murderous machinations in the Big Apple and, and across the U.S. I, I frequently did stories uh, outside of uh, uh, New York. I did, uh, you know, the Robert Blake uh, murder, which uh, was, you know, his um, Bonnie Blankley. Uh, she was... Uh, and she was uh, uh, his wife, but she was, you know, sort of, you know, don't want to speak ill of the dead, but a gold digger who, you know, had, uh, you know, was basically catfishing before catfishing was, uh, you know, in the lexicon. And, and she ended up, she ended up dead. And Robert Blake was, of course, charged with murder uh, of Beretta fame for uh, any of you who don't know who Robert Blake is. And, uh, and uh, he got off. So you came along. You were you were following the foot, footsteps of the great Jimmy Breslin. Yes, to a, to a, to an extent. I mean, Breslin was the model for uh, pretty much everybody. I mean, uh, he, he uh, and I recommend anybody reading it who's in the trade or just likes good writing is uh, Jimmy Breslin on the night uh, John Lennon was uh, was murdered. And he wrote a column in twenty minutes that uh, I will probably uh, never match in my whole career. Give me a week, a month, or a year. I will not be able to do that well. Have everything in there and get the whole scene. Perfect. Perfect. So was this the famous column or was it another murder that he, he wrote and he, he wrote about the grave digger? Oh, no, that was, uh, that was for... Uh, uh, um, the death of uh, John F. Of, Kennedy, uh, John, maybe John F. Kennedy, and everyone, every other reporter uh, was covering the pomp and circumstance of it all, and you know, blah blah blah, hearts and flowers, and that sort of thing. And Jimmy Breslin went to found out who the guy was who was digging the president's grave. And he went and had breakfast with him, and sat with his wife. And the only story everybody remembers. From in our profession, from that day, is Jimmy Breslin's interviewing the grave digger, and and you know just a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he certainly was a character, and I believe of Irish American stock. He was indeed of Irish American stock, and I mean, you know, at one point, all the big New York papers. I mean, that was and, and you know the uh, the Irish tough guy with the heart with the heart of gold. You know, Pete Hamill at the Post, and Breslin, and Mike McAlary at the News. And uh, that was uh, kind of a, a stock in trade uh, for us. And being of uh, you know uh, Irish extraction myself, I was uh, very pl- proud to uh, somewhat uh, follow in those footsteps. Fantastic. New York was, when you were working there, was quite a violent place. I think that was before it had been cleaned up as such. Yeah, yeah. New York was just, they were just getting things under control. I think the first year I worked there, there was 900 homicides. 
um, and they you know brought in a bunch of initiatives to to drop the murder rate. And uh, and what they did was they cracked down on what they called lifestyle crimes, like jumping the subway turnstile. But you know, lo and behold, when they bust these guys, they're finding out they're carrying guns or have warrants for their arrests. So it was uh, kind of like, uh, as Malcolm Gladwell referred to it, the the, uh, tipping point and the the crime started going back downwards. The the randomness uh, of homicide uh, left New York, you know, that, that if you were out on a Saturday night for a couple of drinks with friends, you didn't have to worry uh, as much anyway about being, you know, plugged in an alley uh, by a crackhead or anything like that. So it took the randomness uh, out, of, out, of, out of homicide. And as a result, more people uh, started coming out again. And so, you know, Killers don't like crowds, right? And so, so that it just uh, you know went from there and, and made New York livable again. And uh, and you know, I mean, it was one of the great things of my life seeing uh, uh, the St. Patrick's Day parade uh, that year in '98 or '99. And uh, you know, fifty percent of the cops in New York are Irish uh, of Irish background, and. There were women running into the street, kissing these cops and whatnot, and the cheers were just staggering because you know they they had ex- effectively given them back their city, which you know is, is is no small feat. I mean, you know, you can't live your life in 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 terror, and you know, it, it had gotten to that point in New York. Mm-hmm. And how do you? I mean, presumably when you start working. Um, in a paper as big as that, you you don't get to choose what you cover. You're told. I'm sure there's layers and layers of editors. Or certainly, there was back in the day. Um, you know, like here, that is all depleted over the years, and and newspapers are you know the, the the amount of people in them and working in them are just unfortunately you know in decline. But in 900 homicides, how do you pick the ones to cover? <laughs> So every morning at you know at police headquarters, you know they'd have the morning briefing and you know reading off the tally of, of you know the dead, so to speak. And so you know the re- reporters like you and me covering this on a day-to-day basis and stuff like that. You know how does one stand out from from the other? So guy from the New York Post, uh, I think it was Rocco Perescondola, but. Uh, Asked at uh, asked at one of these press briefings, like all of a sudden, you know, they're reading them up, and he says, uh, you know, at, at any time was the victim a blonde, <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's uh, that's uh, sort of uh, where it got to. Yeah, that's the black humor that goes on in newsrooms. That um, <laughs> you know, we usually try and keep private, don't we? Can't share that too much with the public, of course. <laughs> If, 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 if people sat in on news meetings, if the public sat in on news meetings, uh, they'd probably be mortified and think we were the worst people on the planet. Absolutely. But, you know, it's, it's also a coping mechanism as well, right? Because, you know, you can't do this stuff day in, day out, year after year after year, and it not grind you down. And, I, I mean, I've been fairly lucky personally that, you know, there's only been a few things over the years 
that have done that to me, then it's, you know, I've found it, you know, very, very, just <laughs> what I did very, very, very disturbing. Yeah. I mean, look, journalists tend to hang out together, don't they? And they tend to go for drinks together after work. And there's, you know, plenty of reasons for that. And one is probably the in-house counselling that you get from one another. Well, I, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, you know, I mean, I did a story many years ago and it was, um, you know, Canada hasn't had the death penalty since 1962. So um, I, the, a Canadian guy was being executed in Texas, a guy named Stanley Falder. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I decided to look up to see who, you know, who, who among people who'd been sentenced to death in this country might still be alive. And, you know, I thought I'd find maybe a handful. And there were 50 who, you know, heard the words you'll be taking to the place, you know, from whence you came and they're hanged by the neck until you were dead. Um, And uh, so I tracked down this one guy who'd been, who'd been sentenced to hang for a senseless murder of an old lady and everything. And, uh, I doorstepped him and eventually reluctantly said, yeah, it was me. And it is, you know, it is pleasant enough to talk to him and everything. And, uh, and his wife arrived and his wife completely freaked out, just went out of her mind and everything. And, uh, uh, so, so then I started later learning about that the guy had spent the years since he'd been out of prison going to schools almost every day and say, saying, you know, don't fall into this life like me and everything. And I, it was one of those times where I thought to myself, you know, maybe I should have let sleeping dogs lie, but you know, I didn't you know, know that I was doing my job, but, but you know, it's, you never know with those sorts of things, the things you, you, you write and report on and you know, the consequences aren't always clear and maybe very subtle indeed. Interestingly, his wife came home and was horrified, presumably because he was talking to you, not the fact that he had previously murdered somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah, she was more upset with us than the, than the murder thing. I've had a few but, incidents but, I mean, like that myself, I have to say, over the years that can only amuse me when people are just completely, totally and utterly blown away and horrified that I might be asking them to talk when actually I'm asking <laughs> them to talk about some horrific crime they've committed. <laughs> But you need uh, you need to be tough, don't you? Not too sensitive. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. No, you can't you can't be too sensitive about it. I mean, I, I uh, covered a double murder in January, and it was um, uh, two young women uh, who were shot to death at uh, at an Airbnb uh, out in the country of all bloody places, and they'd been left there. Nobody called for help, uh, and they'd just been left there with a bag of food, right? That was an unopened bag of food from a takeout. And, uh, and, and, you know, so I did the story and, uh, note here, young people don't understand metaphors and nuance. So I, I, you know, likened that left bag of food to these two women while, you know, I was just absolutely crucified by, you know, every self-righteous millennial for, you know, 10,000 miles. And uh, of course they, they hadn't read it. They didn't understand that, you know, I was saying this is a terrible thing, but, but they, they moaned nonetheless. And sometimes people don't read past the headline and 
you know, in tabloids, that can be very sensational. And, you know, they're just so abhorred by that headline that they don't get into what you're actually trying to do within the story. Well, no. And as we know, you and I are the ones that write the headlines, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> and take the photographs, Brad. And take the photographs. <laughs> and take the photographs and pick them and uh, lay out the front page in such a horrific manner. And at times maybe, you know, construct the whole thing so as it happens, so as we have a story in the first place. But uh, Well, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're here to talk about your, your book, Cold-Blooded Murder, Shocking True Stories of Killers and Psychopaths, which is a collection, I feel, of your work over the years and, and the stories that you find interesting and some of which you have, you know, you've been involved in covering yourself and you have your own stories to tell about and others are stories that just tell themselves because they're, they're intriguing yeah. murders, really, aren't they? Um, yes. Now, there's a few of them that I found interesting, but maybe there's a few that you yourself have, I won't say favourites, because it's made up of, your, your book is made up of um, 20 chapters, each of which is uh, a page turner. You have um, domestic murders, you have serial killers in there, and you have every class of a, a, a savage that America and Canada has to offer. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think we've uh, we've pretty much run the gamut, you know, that uh, every every everybody is represented from uh, that ilk. Yes, yes. So what about Eric Miller, um, a chap who's who met his end in 2000? Well, a lot of them, you know, you know as, as you know, that, that, that they're domestics. It's, it's like the old game on forensic files where, you know, you or I could go, you know, husband, husband, wife, daughter, husband, wife, <laughs> you know, that it's all pretty, pretty clear. But, but Eric Miller was uh, a noted and fast rising uh, pediatric AIDS researcher uh, who had married this woman uh, named Dan, and uh, they had children and they were living the blissful life in the, in the Carolinas, uh, and she had a good job, too. She was a researcher as well. Well, you know, enter the other man uh, for whatever reason, you, you know, who, you know, who among us can determine what is in the human heart, but, and she began having an affair with this guy, Daryl Willard, and uh, they, for some reason, you know, of course, you and I would go the sensible route and just say, well, we'll get a divorce. It's over sort of thing. But she started uh, poisoning. For, and this was the premeditated aspect of it. was She started poisoning uh, her husband with, you know, arsenic uh, over many, many months. And, you know, he was periodically be going to uh, the emergency room to have these these matters uh, treated and they couldn't figure out, you know, what was wrong with them. I mean, you know, who's going to uh, uh, poison a pediatric AIDS uh, researcher. But anyway, so he goes out um, the final time with, with his buddies bowling among the people with him bowling is Willard who brings him a beer with uh, arsenic in it. And uh, he goes home, he's in agony, goes to the hospital, and to make sure he pegs out, uh, she takes a syringe 
filled with <laughs> arsenic and plucks it into his IV bag. Uh, it, for some reason, it took a long time to bring her to justice. I, I mean, she, by the time Willard, Willard, within a week or two of you know Eric Miller's murder, had, had had killed himself, hung himself in his garage, leaving behind a wife and daughter as well. But uh, Ann uh, Miller changes her name to Ann Klontz, marries a guitarist for a Christian rock band, and moves to Wilmington, Delaware. Um, and she, uh, but eventually, you know, they they piece it together and put the squeeze on her, and she admits that, you know, yeah, she did it. Now, now, I think she got thirty years, but you know, these are the sort of things I guess over on this side we watch for. That you know, those are both. That's you know, that's a death penalty state, and and it's you know quite. But they're still in the United States reluctant to sentence a woman to death. Um, and and uh, so she has ended up a long time, and uh, you know, a number of things there. Firstly, in in the US, um, like the sentencing system is really hard. Like it is really hard, and people serve that length of time. Here, if you got twenty years, you might serve ten. And yeah, same with Canada. Yeah, same with Canada. I mean, we've cracked down over the last number of years. We have you know what's called dangerous offender. That's like you know, for the irredeemable, un, you know, people who just can't be turned around. And so you're essentially in forever. But I mean, that's that's still very, very rare. But generally it is 10 years for a murder. Yeah, there's a, la- there's a loss and a lack of any sort of hope of redemption, though, in the US, isn't there? I mean, you're thrown in there and the key is gone. You are just not getting back out. And it's it's a grim system, I think. Yes, I mean it doesn't doesn't hold out any hope at all. The re, the rehabilitation aspect of you know criminal justice is is just not a factor in the United States. And the further south uh, you go, the less likely that you're going to see any any of those uh, those aspects. It's an assumption that you know you're the worst of the worst, uh, and even. You know, you look at some of these people and you can say, yeah, they're pretty horrible. And in a perfect world, yeah, you would hang them or, you know, put them in the electric chair or whatever. But you also see things that it's like, uh, all right, horrible crime. But, you know, is this, you know, this is, these are, this is a one-off. This is not, which we under, which we understand, you know, you and I are covering this as long as we have, we understand that there are one-offs that like the vast majority of killers are never going to do that again. Yeah. They did it for whatever benefit. And interestingly, that story grabbed me because I thought that was the classic type of a story that people are interested in, that human beings are interested because here you have what for all intents and purposes is a power couple that from the outside looking in, everything looks perfect. He has his really wonderful job. She has hers. They've one child. You know, they're up and coming middle classers. And actually inside that marriage, inside that seemingly perfect life, everything is chaotic. And I think that intrigues us as human beings. It does. And, and it's part of the why, where, you know, the, the why, the why is what tips somebody over to, I, I mean, there is an element of, uh, in all murders, unless it's, you know, an underworld 
murder, that a level of uh, mental unbalance because, I mean, it's like two kids in a schoolyard, you know, slugging it out, right? And, you know, okay, you've popped Johnny in the nose. He's got a bloody nose and everything like that. He's crying on the ground. Well, that's it. You know, fight's over. No point in going on any further. But these are people that don't stop hitting. Uh, and, and, and that's the thing, too, about domestic uh, homicides is, you know, there may not have been any abuse in, in the marriage at all, but what goes on in people's mind, I think, I think a lot of people get bored and start, uh, I mean, we have our own private narratives and in our, in our minds, well, wouldn't it be nice if I had this woman and drove this car and lived on the med and wouldn't that be great and everything like that. And most of us snap out of it and go on to our day-to-day drudgery Whereas some of these people don't. Yeah. And they, they, they do they do something that is so completely out of character for them that people spend, those around them spend the rest of their lives just saying, I just cannot believe he did that. There must have been a mistake. And Well, yeah. And that's, that's, that's one of the things is that's why people are shocked. I can't believe they did that sort of thing because in, in you know, most of the stories uh, that I chose is in, in my volume is just that, there's no, well, I saw that coming. Of course, this is inevitable. And that none of that is, is really there. This is like, you know, holy you know, Toledo. Um, Anne Miller choosing arsenic is like something from the Dark Ages, isn't it? I mean, how in the name of God did she think she was going to get away with that? Well, Dame, Dame Agatha Christie would be uh, nodding her head in approval wherever she might be. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's a very weird choice. It's just, it's just, that's one of the attractions of, you know, doing these stories and reading about them is the, 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 the choices people make even to do them. Well, you know, I've got somebody goes through, you know, what I've been searching for uh, online, you know, somebody, you know, God help me if somebody uh, close to me dies suddenly and in a weird manner, <laughs> you know, they would start, you know, looking at my searches, even though I'd be doing them for work and say, Oh my God, this guy is, uh, you know, has murderous intent, but, you know, these people don't have reason to look for that stuff. He's murder on the mind. I wanted to talk to you about um, one of the, the pieces you have, Homicide in the Heartland, Sherry Coleman. And this one interested me because, you know, these super religious, zealous almost types, you know, they're they're sort of putting it up to the rest of us that they are so good living and, um, you know, we are beneath them, us mere mortals who... who uh, sin constantly. Um, but yeah, America and the US can be so incredibly religious that I sort of still find it sometimes, I don't know, I don't know why I don't expect it to be, but there's so so many vast parts of it that are so uber religious. And um, Well, yeah, I mean, I, uh, it was, uh, you know, I knew that the South was like that, but I was surprised at how wide how widespread it is. I mean, there seems to be a number of factors for that as well, is that in your charismatic, hardcore evangelical uh, churches, uh, capitalism is deeply woven in to uh, 
the religio uh, religiosity uh, aspect of it. So, you know, you uh, you uh, give to the church and everything like that, you're going to be rich. And uh, uh, it's, it's very bizarre, but, the, you know, I mean, they're no different than anybody else at the end, at the end of the day. And, but televangelism is, you know, uh, like as American as apple pie. I doubt there's anything like it there. Mm. No, well, some parts of the North can be a little bit um, more so um, super religious, you know, parts of the, the North, you can have these Presbyterian areas and, where, where it's right. the only thing similar, actually, that I can I can imagine from from uh, from Ireland, because you know we have a reputation abroad of being a very religious country, but we're not really at all, actually. No, I know, I know you that. Know. <laughs> um, but um, Chris Sherry Coleman's husband was a sort of preacher type, wasn't he? And uh, behind the scenes, he was having this affair and taking raunchy photographs of his mistress and. It all went horribly wrong. Well, it went, yeah, it went it went sideways because you know, I mean, and, and this is a, another aspect of where I don't understand. You know, his, you know, the, his neighbor was a detective, and you know, he comes home after forty five minutes, and his wife and his two children are strangled to death in their beds, and and. I mean, and I'm sure that you've said this to yourself a hundred times, but why did he have to kill the kids? I, I mean, that's not condoning murdering uh, his uh, murdering his spouse, but it just seems, you know, so, so horrible. And I mean, with electronic communication, he was going to, he feared losing his job. He was being paid $100,000 a, a year to, for uh being security for a televangelist called Joyce Meyer, who is quite well known uh, in, in television and various other circles in the United States. Now, he was carrying on this affair. She, Sherry, had indicated she wanted out. Not many other people knew that, but if he got divorced, he would lose his $100,000 a year job, but him and the mistress. So he's getting squeezed. Chris Coleman's getting squeezed from the wife. He's getting squeezed from his mistress. I mean, they'd even named their unborn child. That, you know, wasn't even a glimmer. Uh, 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 and, and he was getting pressure from the ministry, you know, and this all caved in and he uh, basically thought that he would take care of all of his problems in one fell swoop. But I think maybe he, he, he counted on, uh, you know, small town flatfoots not being able to piece things together. And he made up this elaborate ruse about death threats against him and his family and that, uh, that it was tied in with his religious work and all that sort of stuff. And he graffitied the house and any number of things. But, you know, the police started looking at his electronic communication and, you know, looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. And uh, Mr. Coleman is uh, now uh, serving a long prison sentence. And he, he was another one. In this sort of instance, it was very surprising that uh, they didn't want to uh, send him to the, uh, get a, have him get the uh, lethal injection. Because, I mean, you know, A, it's more than one murder. And B, just the, the nature of the crime 
things that were so horrific. I mean, the children, I mean, you know, that's, you know, we can probably forgive a mother who has postpartum depression and, uh, and, and in a moment of madness does something horrific. But, you know, this was planned. It was thought out over many months. It wasn't, never was there a point where this guy said, oh my God, this is insanity. And I have indeed asked that question so many times, um, you know, why the children as well, because it is very, very tragic when you come across, across a case where kids have been taken um, when there was absolutely no need. Um, in your opinion, this is a big life question for you now, Brad, but um, is murder more to do with passion or money? I'm going to say if, if we looked at 100 homicides, I'd say more to do with uh, passion. I would have said money. You're going to say money. I'm okay. more cynical than you are. <laughs> oh yeah, yes, I'm. Uh, yeah, the uh, yeah. That, it reminds me of a, a reference. Uh, it was a study from Columbia School of Journalism on the New York Post many years ago, and uh, and uh, its conclusion was that in many ways the New York Post was the good newspaper that church and community groups have been calling for for years. You know, your wife hadn't been pummeled by a pimp, your daughter hadn't been blinded by acid, so you might as well just uh, you know sit back. But um, no, I have to say, in my experience, I think that um, even where there's passion, there's gain. Oh, yeah, I would I would say that there there isn't a lot of instances, but but that's the stupid aspect about it. Right. If something happened to your partner or my, my partner, who are they going to look at? I mean, you know, they're going to look at you know, you in your case and me in my case, they're not going to, they're not, you know, they're not going to uh, think stranger danger. No, definitely not. We know too much about how to get away with it maybe as well, but um, (laughs) that's another story. We'll keep that to ourselves. Um, (laughs) Did you find more interesting cases during your time in the U.S.? Or Toronto? Oh, the U.S. The U.S. for sure. There's just, there's just no... No doubt about it. It's it's the one you know when you're you're going through crime stories and looking for a hook and everything like that. You can just go through like so many of American ones. And go hook. There's a hook there. There's a hook there. There's a hook there. I did a story a couple of years ago. It was just a rewrite, but I saw it, and it was so fabulous. Um, uh, so this couple, they. they they were big gamblers. They lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which helpful hint, Nicola, is that, that that's a that's a uh, uh, a tabloid hotspot on the dot ah, and okay. on the on the map. Yeah, and uh, but so the cops come in and the guy's lying dead on the floor, right? Gunshot wound to the head, and the wife she had a, a grazed her head, and uh, she said, you know she. Wanted, we were, it was a murder suicide, and I was, you know, you know, just blah blah blah. We are in financial trouble. We're going to try to get through with it and everything like that. And the cops said, okay, you know, and they kind of let her off. Now the guy had an African gray parrot, and she always hated the damn parrot, and, and so she gave the parrot to the parents, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so the parrot isn't in the parents' house five minutes and it starts going, don't fucking shoot, don't fucking shoot. And so 
goes to the next goes to the next day and the parent is still going don't fucking shoot don't fucking shoot so the parents call in the cops and say you know the bird is you know saying this and it seems kind of weird and so the cops open it reopen the case and off she goes for 25 years for murder and did they interview the parrot <laughs> They may have. I think they did. I think they did. I, I think Took the, a full the statement. Was, yeah, full statement of cooperating witness. <laughs> I must remember that spot. Um, I mean, what a story. And you can imagine the headline writers on, on the tabloid newspapers <laughs> and the fun they'd have with that. I mean, we shouldn't laugh because these stories are very serious. And, you know, but uh, then again, you look, you have to sort of... Um, bring a little bit of black humour to the job, as you said before. Do you find yourself that um, wherever you go and whatever you do, that you're having a conversation and it always comes back to your job? And the Always. That's, uh, you know, as you, as you know, we're not going to get rich, but uh, we ha- we're, we're rich with anecdotes. And, uh, you know, I went to a, um, a society function as as my editor's, uh, you know, arm candy, such as I am. And, uh, and it was a lot of, you know, high society women and things like that. And they found out who I was. And, you know, I, I was the most popular guy at the function. And the, there was a case in Toronto about uh, the, a billionaire, uh, Barry Sherman and his wife, uh, very mysterious death, still not, solved uh and you know you know a lot of people are eyeing the, the one kid and you know it's a whole but it's still unsolved but people wanted to know my theories on it and this guy was like the, the generic drug kingpin uh and big pharma hated him right so you could if you're writing the book you could say well big pharma killed him but cops say no big karma didn't didn't kill him, you know, a real estate deal. There's a lot of different theories. But the thing is, is they wanted to know every single last thing I said. Uh, I went to, uh, I went to, I was still working in New York. I came back up here uh, to a party. And it was actually uh, uh, a book launch for a friend of mine who, who uh, is now an editor at one of the posh papers. And, um, you know, he, he asked me to come. It was all people from posh papers and that sort of stuff. And, and, you know, I said, I'd come you know, support him, but I was kind of thinking to myself, well, you know, they're going to come out, they're going to find out I work at the New York post and they are going to sniff and sniff and sniff up in the air and everything like that. So he starts introducing me as this. And after about half an hour, I have people drifting over and saying to me, so what's it like? What's it like working there, right? Because, you know, my day almost guaranteed is going to be a thousand times more fun and interesting than theirs. For sure, for sure. And the interest in crime as and such it is, and I know Canada has a huge interest in crime and podcasting and crime, true crime documentaries and true crime books, along with ourselves. Do you think it is a voyeurism thing or do you think people are interested in it because they have a sense that they want to learn about it, they want to protect themselves, give themselves a layer of defence over something happening to them? I think it's a voyeurism to an, uh, to an extent because, I mean, one of the things that I came to the conclusion of, you know, at Halloween, my uh, partner and I always 
try to watch horror movies on Halloween. And they, over the last five years, they don't do it for me anymore. And the truth is, is that the sort of stuff we cover uh, is more of a horror movie than anything Hollywood uh, could possibly come up with. And so what, what I think that's done is, is that these true crime shows and podcasts and coverage and books and the papers and everything like that has replaced horror movies uh, in, in, in a lot of ways because, you know, yeah, okay, the monster was scary sort of thing, but, you know, you start reading about Ted Bundy and some of, some of these characters and whatnot, Samuel Little, and, and they're far more terrifying. They're real. <laughs> but I find as well that over the years that the reader or the listener has become far more discerning and far more educated and they want far more information on, on the crime so they can so they can come up with the theory themselves, really. They don't need to be told it anymore. They're they're very educated, the the reader and the listener. Oh, and they will go, if you've ever been on uh, the Web Sleuths uh, board, is that people will go to you know, extraordinary lengths. And it's become almost like a parlor game for many people, right? Well, no, his house was three doors down and not two doors down. And ergo, he would have had to, you know, gone through the backyard to get to that sort of thing. And, you know, I mean, people, it's it's like a riddle. People want to try to solve the puzzle themselves, uh, which... You know, the best of us in our profession have uh, tried to <laughs> tried to do for many years in our own way, and uh, it, but it is you know it's become murder has become entertainment. If you ever get a chance, uh, watch uh, the South Park episode on murder porn. I don't know. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Oh, it's very funny. It's very funny. Okay, I shall have a look at that. Um, I enjoyed your book. You can dip in and dip out of it. Um, you know, put it down, pick it up, move chapter. You don't have to follow it from start to finish. I, I'm, I'm sort of uh, impatient and have an inability to concentrate. So it suited me down to the ground. Um, finally, I just wanted to ask you something and maybe we can come back to it again and we can speak again on this, on this podcast. But tell me about Toronto and what sort of, um, I like hearing about crime across the globe and what's going on. What is Toronto like? What are the crime rates like there? And is there a big problem with organized crime? Well, compared to uh, compared to big American cities, Toronto is like a, a nice, cozy park. Uh, I think last year there were about 78, uh, 78 homicides. Of course, it would probably be you know, closer to about 120 in the greater sort of Toronto area. There's a, there's a big gang, gang problem. I mean, uh, you know, if you go through the roster of the dead, you know, you'll find that most of them are young black males who may have had some, um, what's the word I'm looking for, some familiarity with with uh, that milieu. Uh, as far as traditional mafia, we just uh, we just saw the end of uh, of a of a, a three year. Uh, mob war, uh, you know, traditional organized crime, Italian mafia sort of thing, and uh, where there was probably about a dozen people killed, and it finally ended uh, last summer with 
the uh, the assass daytime assassination of a, of a man named Pat Musitano, who was the reputed head of the Musitano crime family uh, here. And uh, that basically, it's been quiet as not good, uh, quiet as can be since then. But it was, you know, and it, was, it is an interesting turn because uh, the mob, the traditional mob, have been uh, started over the last five, six years using black street gangs to do their killing. They were, you know, sending it offshore, if you will. And, uh, and, but what, who they were killing, they weren't going after high-flying gangsters. They were going after uh, uh, low-hanging fruit, like friends and quasi-associates who, who aren't really, you know, and relatives uh, who aren't really in that game. I, and, uh, but, and, but yeah, the Casa Nostra is, uh, is, is fairly big in the southern, uh, southern Ontario. It's a lot of street gangs. There's, you know, the Hells Angels as well. Um, but generally it's re regarded as a, um, as a safe place. The, the randomness of uh, murder is not at play in Toronto. So you're there to kind of move into your quieter years. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. I think I would have had a stroke if I had stayed in New York by now. But, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 you know, there's still lots, there's still lots to do. It's, I mean, you know, you're only limited by your own creativity to an extent, right? And good writers are good rememberers and, uh, you know, oh yeah, that guy, you know, so. Well, long may you and I continue to make an honest living out of crime. Brad Hunter, thank you very much. <laughs> Lovely, absolutely. Thanks, Nicola. Take care of yourself now. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. 